Sometimes you know someone's a good leader just by listening to them. This is certainly the case with Abigail Hart Gray, who we first got to know through our profile of Northwestern Mutual in the Design Genome Project, where she was VP Head of Design. Here's one of our favorite quotes by Abigail from that report. It reads, A-B testing is great for small optimizations, but if you need a revolution, you don't find that in an A-B test, even if you run a hundred of them at a time. Now a director of UX at Google, Abigail is bringing her leadership skills to a bigger organization with bigger challenges. Because we were speaking with Abigail just a few weeks into her new role, we mostly focused on her experiences at Northwestern Mutual, specifically topics like the workflow between designers and developers, how she brought developers into the design process early, and how she got the right people involved from the start of projects. So get ready to listen to a great leader, and we hope you enjoy this chat with Abigail. We also wanted to share a fun, easy way to get more from the Design Better podcast at home. The Design Better podcast is available as an Amazon Alexa skill for Echo Dot and more. Simply say, Alexa, play the Design Better podcast on TuneIn, and you'll hear our latest episodes. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the show. Abigail Hartgray is a design leadership powerhouse. She grew the design team at LearnVest after it was acquired by Northwestern Mutual by 10x in two years and is now a director of UX at Google, leading the charge on digital video ads for the sell side and buy side. We spoke with Abigail earlier this year about her team at Northwestern Mutual, and now we're back to revisit some of the lessons she learned and hear about what she's hoping to accomplish at Google. Abigail Hartgray, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So Abigail, you've had a lot of experience working with large teams and building teams, and it's not always easy to connect the design org to the rest of the organization. I'm curious in your experience at LearnVest and now at Google, you're just a few days into the new role, but how do you generally approach connecting the design team to the rest of the org, engineering, product, et cetera? That's a great question. I think it's really all about relationships and finding the overlap between what you're trying to achieve within the design group and what product and engineering are trying to achieve, as well as the business partners. And then when you find that common ground of the things that you all want, you can design towards that, right? So one of the things that I always like to do is find out what do the other people care about? What are the metrics that they're trying to affect? We can design towards anything. The great thing about design is that there's no one solution. So when you find the places where you can all agree, okay, let's march towards this goal, I think that's the way to start building a relationship and building trust because you want to show them that you care about the same things they do because there's always a lot of overlap. I've heard you describe yourself as a bit of a metrics nerd. Is that accurate? I am. I'm, I'm metric obsessed, yes. So I, this is interesting to me because it's not something we often hear from a lot of designers and design leaders is that design can be a bit squishy. It can be subjective, often seen as like the voice of the customer. But you have brought metrics and KPIs to your teams in the past. Can you talk about why that's important and what does that do for the design team and its relationships to the broader company? The way that I got to being obsessed with metrics is because of my unique history or semi-unique, I don't know. I started a design firm when I was 23 years old in the naive way that only a 23-year-old can and I had to find a way to prove that I was worth what I wanted clients to pay me. And so the way that I found that I could do that 
was I would sort of give them like an entry price for the first project and then prove that whatever they wanted to be the outcome actually happened and then charge them like 5x, 6x, 7x for the next project because they knew that I would achieve the results that they wanted. So I guess I got obsessed with metrics at a very, very young age, but it's actually served me well moving into the business world because that's a way for me to find ways to quantify the value of design to the larger organization. So I adopt what metrics are important to the business or I work with my you know, data counterparts, my product counterparts, my engineering counterparts to find whatever proxy for what we value as a company that can be measured, right? So it's baselining where you are and then finding out what the power of design, and usually, let's be honest, the power of collaboration does for those metrics because a design idea that never gets built is nothing. It's pretty pictures. An engineering idea that doesn't have a good UX on it isn't going to be adopted and used the way you want it. And a product idea without any designer engineers kind of doesn't go anywhere either. So you can achieve more and show that you actually impacted something that really matters when you do that kind of before and after comparison. A previous manager of mine said it's playing Moneyball. So I like to play Moneyball in design. It's awesome. So we usually kind of try to avoid talking about our own tools and our own platform. But last time we spoke, you had this really intriguing way that you were uh, using Envision to measure your team performance when you're at LearnVest and Northwestern Mutual. Could, could you talk about that a little bit? Well, I'm a super big nerd. Um, so every year at the end of the year, I would do the year in design. And although a lot of it was sort of feel good stuff and showing what we had launched, whatever, we measured a lot of things. So the ways that I would show our productivity as a team as we were exploding from seven designers to 70 was I would show how many screens had been uploaded into Envision that year, how many prototypes had been shared and how many comments, which was a proxy for just like how many people were interacting with design as a way to show how we were kind of infiltrating, if you will, the rest of the organization. And that became a core part of that yearly celebration of the achievements of design. I want to play devil's advocate with you here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if, if there's a point at which metrics could be uh, a bit of the tail wagging the dog that if we align metrics all the time, if design is always aligned to broader metrics of the company, if that shifts the values of the team. So for instance, if the KPI is, let's generate a bunch of MQLs, or let's generate X amount of revenue, could it cause the focus to be less on the experience of the customer and more on the outcomes that we wanna create for the business? Well, I think you have to be really careful about what metrics you use, right? Statistics, everybody always says, can be very misleading depending on the way that you use them. Metrics are the same way. So if you're talking about task completion rate or in e-commerce, reducing the drop-off from the shopping cart to actually the purchase click, those are really key metrics that show that your experience is getting better, right? If more people are making it from a declaration of intent, like putting something in their shopping cart through to purchase, you know that you're doing a better job. So I think it's just about being really careful in how you measure things. So the other part of it is some of our metrics, I don't wanna say they were squishy because they were hard numbers and they were measured outside of my group. But for example, at LearnVest Northwestern Mutual, we measured how many of our clients thought we were making continuous improvements for the better. 
And that was something I always kept an eye on because that's telling me, okay, what percentage of our audience actually thinks we're making improvements versus being you know, stagnant, which you never want to be, or worst case scenario, thank goodness, never ever happened, thought we were not making any improvements for the better. And if you see that kind of number rising, you know you're pointed in the right direction. So it's about finding the right way to measure your value. And while revenue, obviously, for all businesses is a really important piece, there's often proxies that tell you a better indication of how the experience is improving. Yeah, one other thing along that theme that was really interesting last time we spoke to you, you had, I'm going to pull out a quote, which may be a little bit of paraphrasing, but, but you said <laughs> that A-B testing is great for small optimizations, yeah. but if you need a revolution, you don't find that in A-B tests, even if you run them 100 of them at a time. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So I think that there's a lot of companies are coming up against the fact that they started with an experience, you know, at X point in time, and they've been iterating on it and adding to it, and there's new features or market conditions change. And all of a sudden, you've got an experience that's a little bit Frankenstein, right? It's it's the exquisite corpse of building on top of something else. And you're not going to get a beautiful portrait of a person doing that. So if you really want to change the game by 10x, which is something I've heard already in my first two weeks at at Google, we don't want to change something 10%. We want to change it 10x. You can't do that with small little A-B tests, right? That'll help you localize small problems that can have a big impact over time, but not that kind of step-level change when you want to revolutionize something. And that was something we recognized really, really early on with LearnVest Northwestern Mutual in terms of the client experience, as well as the field-facing experience for our sales force. And that's something I think that's always strived for here at Google as well. Do you have any stories around products that, you know, you made that step-level change, that little revolution in your time at LearnVest or Northwestern Mutual that you could talk about? I mean, I think the whole logged-in client portal was an example of that. So in my first year, I asked our EVP of client digital experience what he cared about. He said he wanted to increase client adoption. He wanted to see people signing up for paperless billing and for paperless document delivery. He wanted people to be more engaged with us, right? And so when we come back and we look that by the time I had left, we had 6x client adoption. We had somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,100% increase in e-delivery. And when we reduced by about a third the time between visits, we knew that we were becoming more relevant to people. That's, I think, step change. Those were big shifts for that audience. And we're really proud of helping Northwestern Mutual achieve those results. One thing that I find really interesting about your approach is that when you step into a new role, and presumably this is already running through your mind and you're your new role at Google, is how do you come in and create value for the company, win the team's trust, start to win partnerships? This whole idea of connecting a workflow really has to happen, you know, as you described earlier, that through building rapport and relationships. And part of that, especially at a place like Google, where there's a lot of smart, talented people, you got to come in and show your mettle. You got to show what you can do. Uh, and you had an interesting approach at LearnVest when you started. It was a different scenario. At, at Google, design is an understood and valued quantity, and it's being invested in. At uh, Northwestern Mutual, 
it's a large organization with a long history and still kind of learning some new things of, of what's possible for the business with design. So can you talk about your strategy of how you walk into a new organization like that, into a new role rather, uh, and show this is the value that design can bring to the business? Yeah, so I'm really lucky actually because I've now gotten to be at a few different companies in very different industries. And what that forces me to do or gives me the opportunity to do is to go on a listening tour and learn. So the first thing I always do when I walk into a new organization is meet as many people as I can, ask them about what's going well, what's not going well, explain to me things as you see them. And then once I have a good bit of information, after I feel like I kind of understand the landscape, what I like to do is pick something which has no value to the company currently, little or no value, and choose that to do a rapid kind of workshop sprint process to rebuild it, oftentimes with no new functionality, because if you're going to do that, you may not really get to, to add any new exciting features if you want to get it out quick, but to turn it around and show how it can be something of value to the company. And if I target the right things, I've found that that can build a lot of trust. For example, when I walked into LearnVest and Northwestern Mutual in my second or third week, we decided that the logged in dashboard for our clients was the best test case for that, right? Had no impact on revenue. It was not impacting the greater metrics, as I mentioned before, of client adoption, electronic document delivery, and account aggregation that we wanted. And so I decided that that was a fantastic test case because one, metrics-wise, there was nowhere to go but up. Uh, and two, nobody really thought that much of it. So if I did something that people didn't like, it wasn't going to negatively impact any real sort of major company metrics in any way. Took a small group of product folks, engineers. We did a workshop. It was the first design workshop that they had ever had. And in six weeks, we had redesigned, rebuilt, and relaunched this logged-in dashboard. So when you type in your credentials, uh, the first place that you would land. And within six weeks, we were getting some really good indicators that things were going well. We had over 300% increase in account aggregation. We had 29% increase in client adoption. We saw an 86% reduction in the bounce rate. And I've found that when you take something really low value, you can turn it into something that really works for you because people see you as, as almost like a miracle maker, right? Wait, they didn't do any new features. In that case, it was still on an old tech stack that we knew were, was going to be deprecated in three months after we launched it, but we could still use the design work, obviously. And so then it was like, oh my goodness, you guys made it rain and it was a drought forever. Uh, and it's the opposite when you take something really big. I think a lot of designers, they get so excited and they know they can do big things. And so they go after the big shiny apple and this thing that is super important to everybody because they want to make an impact. And it's a great impulse. But when you're going through that process, you can also make people really, really nervous. If you're going after the cash cow, you do not want to mess it up because then design will be responsible. And you also may not know enough and really have the relationships with people so that they're like, oh, right, this is scary, but I trust you. Instead, they're like, who does this person think she is going after our most important asset here? And so this has become a little bit of a playbook of mine. I've done it the wrong way at places too, but we did this at AOL and it worked really well for the AOL app. 
I did it at LearnVest and it worked great for the summary page when you log in. I don't know what it's going to be at Google yet, and I'm excited <laughs> to find out. But it's a very large and very complex problem in the ads world of, of the buy side and the sell side software that we're dealing with. So right now I'm still in my listening tour. That's great. So you mentioned workshops as part of that strategy, and I imagine it's a great tool for bringing teams together early on, especially if you're building those relationships. Could you talk a little bit about the workshops? Yeah, I mean, I think the workshop serves selfishly two purposes, right? So one is, of course, to make everybody feel part of whatever it is that you're doing so that they're buying into whatever the result is. But also, as a new person coming into an organization, their knowledge, their intellectual capital up there in their heads is so valuable to you. Uh, so you really get to absorb all of their knowledge and they're helping you do your job well. Uh, so it is a mutually beneficial activity to do. And I think it can be very fun and it can be exciting to like spend two days in a room with people. And in the case at LearnVest, I, you know, we all went home and, and I sent them out to dinner at a great New York City restaurant. And I went home, put my daughter to bed and then wireframed until about 2 a.m. Um, so that the next day I could put those up in front of people, get their critiques, which were fantastic, and then have an idea of where we needed to go. So I think it serves that dual purpose really well because the people that have been in an organization longer than you just can offer so much to help give that kernel of insight that you can springboard a whole kind of trust building design activity off of. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DesignBetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DesignBetter. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T 
designbetterdesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code designbetter5. You talk a bit about how you sell the idea of getting involved in a sprint or a design thinking workshop because, you know, depending on where you are. So at Google, that's not going to be a hard thing because sprints are part of the culture. It's, it's just in the water there. But at other organizations where they don't necessarily understand what a sprint is, what's required of them, they might feel reticent to sketch or participate in a design activity because, quote unquote, I'm not a designer. Um, how, do you, how do you bring people into that and get their, their buy-in to the process? To be totally honest, I don't think designers give people the benefit of the doubt enough. Um, yeah, some people might be scared to sketch. And, and there was an instance where we did a design workshop at a previous company and somebody who was not a designer started crying when we suggested that people sketch stuff out. But that's only happened ever once. And I've done a lot of workshops. And then we just gave her a designer. And all of a sudden she had a scribe and it was okay. And by the end of, in that case, it was a, a four day workshop. She was psyched and she was doing her own sketches by the last day because you have to just show people, it doesn't actually matter how well you could draw. It's about getting your ideas out and in front of each other. So we do a lot of telling people up front when they arrive in the room, what we're gonna be doing so that they know what to expect and not telling them too much beforehand. Um, because I think, you know, if somebody's really unfamiliar, maybe they're thinking they'll just come and tell designers what to do, which I think is fine because you need their brains. So when you get them in the room, you can explain. The other thing that sometimes we do is we'll pair up groups of non-designers with a designer whose job it is to be their scribe. And inevitably, there's some good dialogue that comes out of it and people will pull out their own pens and paper and start trying to show the designer exactly what they're thinking because everybody imagines something different. And the other really key thing is snacks because the quality of the food, I think, results directly in the quality of the feedback. So make sure you've got plenty of uh, yummies to help people's brains stay active and keep them talking. And I'm, I'm not above bringing in sugar to get people talking. <laughs> that technique works on four-year-olds and 40-year-olds. Being a parent has been the best thing for teaching me how to be a better designer. Tell us more about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I have a fantastic daughter who actually already loves to draw and paint, so we never have any trouble getting her to do that. But I think being a parent, it teaches you patience. It reminds you what it's like to have somebody in front of you who hasn't had whatever experiences you've had. And you remember to stop and explain before you go to, I took my daughter to a Broadway play, and she was very confused. Would this be real people? Where is the screen? It was frozen on Broadway. Would there be a real snowman, and did she need her coat? And it was so great because it sort of takes you back to say, oh, remember what it's like to know nothing about something and everything is new and exciting? A lot of times going into these workshops, people have the same kind of fear. They don't know what to expect. They've never been in this before. Um, and it's an opportunity to actually give them a positive experience of what it's like to work with a bunch of designers and to have some fun doing it. So you know, at Northwestern Mutual, you were part of a you know transformation as, this mm -hmm. as the company was moving you know more heavily into the digital territory. And design thinking from a lot of the companies we've spoken to that are 
older and haven't yet, you know, fully embraced design. Design thinking is a, a powerful way to power that transformation. John Maeda calls it a, a bridging technology. What are some of the ways that you experienced design thinking as a tool for transformation? Oh, well, I think the, the biggest way in which design thinking is a tool is the way that it teaches empathy, right? Because usually the problem that businesses have when they're in the midst of a transformation is that they're thinking from the inside the company perspective, looking out, instead of remembering to look from the outside perspective into the company. And so that's where a lot of times when companies hire agencies, for example, and you go and you look at the navigation on their website, you think, oh gosh, this reflects their internal structure and not have people actually think about their products or services or what have you. And that's just the most common problem. And yet what design thinking asks you to do is one, not be prescriptive about the answer, right? But to first think about the problem and think about the people experiencing that problem. And only then to be very open to the possibilities of how you may solve that problem and to come in it from a different angle. So I think that is maybe the most salient way that design thinking changes how companies are solving problems and transforming themselves. You know, one of the most important partnerships that designers have is with engineering, developers. And I'm curious in your experience, how, how do you build rapport, build understanding, bring that notion of empathy that you just described to your colleagues in engineering, just to make sure that the process is more seamless, communication is you know, clear, transparent. How do you build that connection with an engineering org? I'm not sure it's any different from building a connection with anybody else. It's understanding what they want, how they approach things, what they're worried about, what they're excited about. I would say where I've gone wrong in my career is making assumptions. Maybe it was having a readout of a usability study of an experience and not inviting my chief architect, which happened at LearnBest. And he came to me and he said, Abigail, I heard that you did this research on this experience we're launching and there was really good critical feedback. I want to know what the users think of what we're building. I really want them to like it. Can you do another readout or invite me next time? And it was like, oh my gosh, what an oversight. Here I was like, oh, you know, one in a bunch of usability studies we're doing in this experience. Um, but it really opened my eyes to how you know, even blind I could be and not understanding how much overlap there is in what the engineering team was interested in and what I was interested in. And so then I just started meeting with this gentleman regularly and asking him, what was his team doing? What were they interested in? What were they curious about? What did they want to explore? Oh, could we do that together? Could we maybe set up a charrette and have everybody work on that together? And then people are so much more eager to actually engage with you and spend that like shoulder to shoulder time, even on the more mundane things like, you know, design QA, that it's really just talking to them and getting to know them and what makes them tick and makes them excited about their work, which I think is what everybody wants. I think that's design thinking, actually. It's empathy. When we last spoke to you, you had an interesting perspective on QA that, that uh, at least I hadn't heard before. Why do you think QA is an important part of the design process? Oh, gosh. QA is so important because ultimately, you know, 
It's the way to ensure that all the time you've invested in the product requirements and your wireframes and your comps and making sure that everything comes together seamlessly. If you don't really diligently QA that, it's kind of like you're giving somebody else your child to take care of or, you know, closing your eyes and letting somebody else do your makeup, which just never comes out really well. It's not sort of taking things to the finish line. And I think you have to be willing to invest that time and that collaboration because things come up when it's being built. That's one of the things that I think so many designers are working through right now is what is the best tool to communicate how I really want this to be. And so far, I don't think there's any perfect way that any designer has figured out to prototype every single interaction and every single moment that they want to be delightful. We create patterns and then we make those extensible, but other stuff comes up. So just a little build on the QA question. Um, you actually sat down with the head of QA and created a design QA process together. We what did. was that experience like? It was awesome. So the head of QA at LearnVest, he and some of his team had come up with this 12-point checklist, which I thought was fantastic. But they wanted to know how to deal with design, right? And so we actually ended up whiteboarding it together and figuring out a process um, to make sure that you know we could still move quickly and get things launched and have a collaborative way to assess what were blockers, what were fast followers, what maybe weren't that important of whatever is found in QA. And then we put it up on Confluence. So everybody could see what he and I felt like were important things to do and considerations to have before you launch something. Um, and it was the first time I got to do it like that, which was really neat. And then about two and a half years later, we got back together and really, should we revisit this? Let's update it. Let's make a new diagram. Now we have these things. All right, cool. And we did it again, which was so fun. Can you talk more about those steps? What, what does a good, effective QA process look like for design? So I think the first step is for the engineering team to decide how they want to engage with designers in QA. Because what we found is that there were some teams who wanted to do it, let's say, like five hours at the end of every sprint, right? Where the designer and the QA person could sit together and they could go through all the bugs together face to face. Other teams, they could be a little more shy, right? They wanted to go through many sprints and then give us a heads up when they were ready for QA. So they could sort of shift their brains from being in build mode to being in QA mode. And I think it was really important for the design team to be flexible in how we approached it to match their mindset. So once we did that, what we did was we always created these mocks that were showing the build on top of the mocks and highlighting where there were differences and also what mm. needed to be fixed. And then what we would do is we would prioritize them together. So between product, engineering, and design, we would go through each one of the bugs and classify it as a blocker, as a major, a minor, or something that didn't need to be addressed, and figure out what we were going to do for release, what we'd do for fast followers, what would be in subsequent sprints, and sort of rinse and repeat. So both methods worked great. We just all had to agree what the rules of the game were together before we got too deep into build. This might be pedestrian, but just the mechanics of the build and the mocks, are you just printing out two different screens and showing those side by side or is there No, some other so actually we did, um, we had separate Envision projects that we would label QA. 
So it would have the same name as the design mocks that they were building off of, but have QA in front of it. And so we had that digitally so that we would have a record of what the state of the QA was at any given point for those teams that like to do it iteratively, or just to be able to reference it when we were doing sprint planning later on. So we kept it non-paper on purpose just to make it more kind of transparent and accessible to people. That's great. So um, as we mentioned in the introduction, you grew your team at LearnVest by 10x. And I'm guessing there's some folks listening who want more investment in their design teams. What are some of the things that you learned along the way that helped you grow your team by that factor? A few things. So one, you do need to keep educating companies about what it is that design does. We were also proud to be designers, especially within the context of the design thinking movement that was happening at LearnVest Northwestern Mutual. But we were also a little bit of a misnomer because we were a crew of UX designers, visual designers, copywriters, researchers. And there was a time, usually in the summer, maybe it was too much frosé, when people would come and say, you have X number of designers. Why do you need more? Or why can't you do more? And so I'd sort of dust off this presentation every few months that would say, all right, here's how many designers we have. But of those, this number are writers. They don't do design. They write things. This number is research. Researchers don't design things. They give us insights. And then all of a sudden, people would say, oh, you need more heads. I go, yeah. And then they say, okay, let's find you some more heads. Um, and to not get upset about it, right? Just be used to that. People, they haven't worked with design. If it's not already part of the company's DNA, it's something that needs to be developed over time. The other thing is to talk very openly about what the models are of how you can staff design and make it a collective decision for how the company wants to spend their money. So when we were going from six designers and one researcher to anything, right, because we had many, many hundreds of engineers, even in the early days, we had the question, do we do embedded? Do we do full shared service? Do we want to aim for some kind of hybrid? And we knew that we we're not going to spend the amount of money to have dedicated UX designer, visual designer, copywriter, and researcher for every Scrum team at the company. One, I never could have hired them that fast. <laughs> Two, just in terms of spend, it, it's very expensive, right? There's a great thing that people develop longstanding relationships with everybody on the team and they work really closely, which is awesome. But we also had a lot of products that would, um, by virtue of the, the technical complexity of them, would mean that there was downtime for those designers. And so then you're paying for designers to not have enough to do. And we didn't want to do that. In the early days, our solution was to be totally shared service, just resource against company priorities, send people where they were. Once we got to a certain level of scale, we could start to have a more nuanced view of things. And where we ended up was having groups of products that we called portfolios that were thematically linked and have fixed leadership in user experience, visual design, copyright, and research at the top of those portfolios, and then a shared pool of individual contributors to put where the work was. So we had people developing deep product and engineering and business expertise in certain areas, but then could kind of flex the workforce to where the most work existed at the time. And I think when you make that decision together, you can then remind people, hey, this is why we decided to do it this way. That's why you want a designer tomorrow, but it's going to take us three weeks to get you your team. Or if people say, why are there so many designers? Because you went with the embedded model that you can say, well, it costs this much because you wanted 
you know, an always on design service for you. Once you hit scale, that's, that's the good news that you've got the, the heads, you've got the staff that you need to keep up with the work. The challenges start to shift that there's a broad communication challenge that we're staying connected to what work is happening, making sure there's no redundancy in the work, helping people learn from one another, share systems, and then more broadly, how do you communicate out to the, to the rest of the company, this is what's happening inside of design, so they have a sense of what you're doing and how you're creating value. Can you talk about some mechanisms or processes that you've used in the past that help design be more visible to itself and also to the rest of the company? Sure. So I think in terms of design being visible to itself, having open crits or work shares is really important because people people do find value in them. And, it, you know, we started early on when, when I was there as a way, you know, when you have six designers, of course, you're going to look at the work altogether because there's only six people you need to accommodate. And later on, um, I would actually do polls with the team. When we got to be about 50 people, I started to get nervous. Do people really want to see X, Y, or Z project that they have nothing to do with in a team format. And it turned out people really did. We tweaked the format a lot. People wanted to have different hosts, so we rotated hosts between all the portfolio leads, sometimes even with individual contributors. People wanted to see, sometimes they found a lot of value out of seeing a whole user's journey presented together versus a portfolio. But that became a very important mechanism for us internally to keep designers uh, learning from each other and finding ways to piggyback off of each other's work. In terms of the larger organization, we found that it was really important to go into other team staff meetings and let people know what was going on. So to communicate the structural changes of what was happening with InDesign to, let's say, the product all hands, that that was very important. And to keep letting people know about our capacity changes, right? So there is an instance where we found out there was some product managers doing some research themselves, and we got feedback that, that maybe that wasn't ideal. And I went and asked the product manager, like, what's going on? Why are you guys doing this? And he was like, well, you know, I know you only have three people, and then somebody left, so I just didn't want to ask you. I was like, well, yeah, somebody left, but we hired five more people. Um, you could have had one of them. And he was like, oh, I didn't know. And I kind of hit myself on the forehead and went, oh my gosh, I was introducing people to my team as people joined my team, but I was forgetting to tell the outside world, oh, hey, guess what, guys? We have five more researchers. We're now at, you know, 3x capacity of what we had six months ago. Let's re-engage. And so it's, it's sort of a, it has to become a routine not just a sort of moment. So we started like re-upping on doing our little like design 101 intro at Lunch and Learns and found people were really excited to come, whether because they hadn't seen it in a while or they'd never worked with us yet, but they had heard about it. It's never, we had sort of thought we were done with that stage, but we really weren't. It takes much more time and, and reinforcement than I realized at the time. So when we, uh, when we last spoke, you were really engaged in learning about ops, design ops, and you're starting to spin that up at LearnVest. Mm -hmm. um, how, how is that process going for you? What, what were you learning as you were in, engaging in that? Oh, gosh. Well, I learned a lot. It was very exciting. I think that the stuff that struck me the most was how different groups structured the group, 
what kind of talent they went after, right? Because it's a very new field. So most people aren't coming out of 10 years of design ops. And Envision was actually fantastic in making a bunch of introductions for me to talk to people at Facebook, people at Pinterest. Um, and for me, the way I had sold in design ops to Northwestern Mutual and LearnVest was that it was a collection of capabilities that help design run better and communicate better with the rest of the organization. The really fantastic thing that I learned was how many companies were beginning to also pair that with learning and a designer experience program, which I thought was so fantastic. And so we began to look at better ways, more efficient ways to onboard new designers, right? Because one of the biggest problems when you're growing 10x in two and a half years is how do you get all these people up to speed, right? Because at a certain point, you have newish people training new people on what you're doing. And if you're not doing a good job of bringing people in, there's real risk that stuff can go a little crazy. So that was a really exciting thing to think about as well that sort of let us kind of dip our toe into that designer experience aspect. So I thought that was fantastic. And I think that thinking about communication tools can mean um, a lot of different things, right? So it was through that effort that we actually had started to build a tool for copywriters to be able to seamlessly flow their copy into Sketch uh, without needing to actually know how to do Sketch and without heavy copy decks and having designers cut and paste copy. During that time, though, the folks that were working on it actually found a new plugin that was released. And getting that in the door saved both a lot of frustration on the designer side, because copying and pasting things doesn't make anybody feel particularly strategic, (laughs) but also made the copywriters feel more included in the design process. And the other thing was how resource managers and program managers could come in and help us run a really, really big initiative and ensure that the team was staying in line with our product team's kind of strategic ideas and the engineering team's roadmaps to make sure that the design effort was aligned to both of those. So I think it's a very exciting time in design ops. It is. And design ops is this recurring theme we hear a lot about. When you talk about scaling a design team, ops is kind of an essential thing. You need this input-output layer for the design team to be able to connect to the rest of the organization and be successful. Mm -hmm. So, Abigail, we know that you are a consummate learner. You're always pushing yourself, uh, learning new things, as evidenced by your uh, devouring of everything you could get your hands on uh, around design ops. So we're curious about books that you're reading right now that are interesting and compelling, informing what you're doing, and maybe if there are blogs or podcasts or other places where you're picking up new ideas. Ooh, wow, exciting. So I'll be honest, the books that I'm reading right now are really about Google's history. I'm trying to contextualize what we're doing now and how we're looking at the future with this really rich history that I don't think I fully appreciated even before I got here and went through my nuclear orientation. And that's everything from work rules to uh, there's another history of Google somebody gave me. But one of the things I'm most excited about was that yesterday at our own UXU, I heard a keynote by Debbie Millen. And she was talking about the history of branding and packaging and consumer confidence. And although it was for the whole broad uh, UX audience here, I felt it was so relevant to thinking about ads in the modern marketplace 
and what does brand signify and what does safety mean to consumers in this latest iteration of the digital age. And if you can, if you can pick up one of her books or that's another podcast that I think is worth listening to. I was very excited in the way that it was making me think about the experiences that we're creating for consumers as well as publishers and advertisers. Yeah, Debbie Millman's podcast, Design Matters, is great. It's been around for a long time. Very interesting stuff. So Abigail, as always, it was fantastic talking with you. Um, you shared such great stories and insights. We really appreciate having you on the show. And best of luck as you forge ahead in your new career at Google. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here and lots of fun as always.